Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Shabnam Karala Azad, currently the Dean for the School of Education at the University of San Francisco. When I first started the show, I wrote down a list of people that really inspire me and motivate me to get better every day, and Shabnam was one of the first people I thought of. She is the first female dean that the University of San Francisco has had, as well as the first person of color to be dean for the school. And in a few weeks, she'll be visiting Nepal because the government invited her to give a keynote speech addressing higher education, which is extraordinary on its own. I don't know many people who get contacted by the government to speak, but particularly significant because Shabnam is the first person from Nepal, male or female, to be dean of any university in the U.S., Growing up in Kathmandu, she had a unique upbringing, raised by a Nepalese father and an Iranian mother. Both focused very early on in helping others with education, in a country where access to information was difficult. Her journey took her to Mount Holyoke, where her academic pursuit in education formally began, and continued west at UC Berkeley, where she obtained her PhD. And for over 20 years, Shabnam has devoted her life to assessing the systems of education, dissecting how they affect our thoughts, our way of life, and our application of higher education, which is huge interest of mine because I have young kids and I question the value of that today and also in 10 and 20 years. And you'll also hear about her mother passing away when she was just 10 years old. Her dad raised her and her brother to think of others and to be mindful of life significance and purpose in connecting and helping others, which is certainly very clear when you meet her. And despite a position of great responsibility and influence, Shabnam retains the same sense of humility from her upbringing in Nepal with this deep focus on elevating education to the masses. You'll hear about the struggles and the failures from the adversity in Nepal to her first interview at an advertising agency where she failed pretty miserably to being called too nice to be a dean. And what I love about Shabnam isn't all of her success, which is certainly inspiring on its own, but her relentless hunger to do more and to help others. I have found Shabnam to be an inspiring teacher in more ways than one, and I know you'll enjoy hearing her story. Hi, Shabnam. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Yin, for having me. Before we begin hearing more about your path to being a dean at the University of San Francisco, can we hear about your story of where it all began? Where did you grow up? My journey began in Kathmandu, Nepal, a small country sandwiched between India and China. My father is from Nepal, and my mother was Iranian. I was born there and grew up bicultural in Nepal. And what were your parents like? My mom was one of these kind of social change fighters from the very beginning. She left Iran when she was 17 years old, partly motivated by kind of a desire to get away from the deep patriarchal system. She 
grew up believing in the equality of men and women. My grandmother used to tell me that she was always very disturbed by the fact that the society was so not that <laughs> and so patriarchal. And so when she was 17, she was motivated all by herself to just pick up and leave and travel to the Philippines, actually, at the time to teach at a school there outside of Manila. And so she was just one of these people who, from the beginning, kind of believed in social change. She believed in social transformation. She was very much motivated by her beliefs and her faith. And she literally took a leap of faith in traveling to the Philippines and serving as a teacher there for a number of years before she picked up and went to India to pursue a degree in mass communications and media at the Indian Institute. And when she entered that university, she met my father. And my father had come from Nepal. My father describes himself as a very motivated student. And in Nepal at the time, if you were a student who did well in school, you were expected to go into the sciences. Uh, and if you didn't, you went into humanities or the arts. So it was very much stratified. And my father talks about going to university in Nepal, studying science and aspiring to be a doctor or <laughs> going into medicine, but deciding as he was studying that that was actually not his passion. And when he saw this opportunity in India, at this Indian Institute for Mass Communications, he thought, wow, that's really where I want to get some training is in really thinking about how information and communications can be used to advance democracy, essentially. So I don't think his family was very thrilled about him switching careers and going to India to pursue this degree. But going there also meant that my parents were able to meet and shortly after decided to get married in India and then moved to Nepal. My mom passed away actually when I was only 10. And that was a big moment in my family's life because up until then, we had a really unique family structure. My mom's side of the family, four generations of us lived under the same roof. So it was all the way from me up until my great-grandmother. And this was the Iranian side. They all came to Nepal because they identified as members of the Baha'i faith and they were heavily persecuted in Iran. So as they were thinking about where to move, it made sense to come and join my mom in Nepal. So there was this Iranian side of the family. And then, you know, of course, the Nepali side with my dad and his extended family all in Nepal. I know that part of your show is about these challenges and that really formulate who we are. When my mom passed away, that whole family structure changed. My grandmother and my great-grandmother left to go live with my uncle in South Africa. And that changed our family in some ways, too, because suddenly we went from being this big kind of extended family situation to my father being a single father and my brother and I. In retrospect, I can see what a tough moment that was. It was a real moment of loss for our family. And still, I give my father so much credit for somehow kind of pulling everything together and 
my extended Nepali family there came through for my brother and I in such a solid way that I think even though we went through this loss and change and so much, it really made us not feel a lack of love at any one point. And I feel like that was really momentous and allowed us to just continue moving on along these trajectories that we were on. How much of your mother's passing away affected you and her mission and how much her focus on education would apply to your life path? I don't know that as I was going into the field of education, I really intentionally thought about that. But now that I think back, I think it was a but it had a huge impact. And it's even before my mother. My grandmother was a school teacher, teacher in Iran, you know, and taught under, you know, some constrained circumstances. Now that I think about it, I think so much of my decision to go into education was about extending that legacy. Were you a good student in middle school and high school before choosing the university you went to? Yeah, I think good student is debatable. My brother was an excellent student. So in some ways, I feel like it, I would never live up to that, but certainly always had that motivation to learn. <laughs> and where did you ultimately decide to go to university? My college exploration was very different than what I see here with those kids who come from more privileged backgrounds, which is to kind of have your slate of potential colleges and then to say, oh, we'll go visit and we'll see what it's like. Mine was more, okay, you know, we've heard of these colleges, people gave their suggestions based on what they knew. We had friends from the U.S. who were giving some advice. But one huge determining factor for my family was scholarship. It was very clear to my brother and I from the time we were <laughs> kind of exploring the possibilities of higher education that if we wanted to pursue higher ed, we had to get scholarships because my dad wouldn't be able to kind of uh, support us through that. One of those schools was Mount Holyoke College, the oldest women's college in the U.S., one of the seven sisters kind of of this Ivy League and also known for supporting international students. So I applied to Mount Holyoke. They came back with a big scholarship package. And so the choice was clear at that point that that's where I'd go. Did you know what you wanted to focus on when you're there? I didn't. I left Nepal knowing that I wanted to do something in development studies. And when I thought about that, I thought about it more from the perspective of what my dad was doing in terms of working towards social change, but at the grassroots. I also grew up during the development era in Nepal. You know, it was in the 70s and 80s. There was a lot of foreign aid coming into the country. And so I, I was able to see what the World Bank and IMF and these multinational banks were doing in the development field and kind of comparing that with what my dad was doing at the grassroots. And so I went in with all these curiosities and questions about what model really works, like what is development, like with curiosities about development and social change, but also very much committed to going back and contributing to that in some way. But then as I thought about more about social change, I took a class at Mount Holyoke that really explored this connection between education and social change. And that was it for me. I was like, okay, yes, this is the connection that I really want to 
learn about is why is education so deterministically connected to this idea of development and change and transformation. It was kind of the perfect connection between my mom's side of the family and the investment in education and the commitment to education and then my dad's work in development. And so how did you choose to pursue a PhD at UC Berkeley? Go Bears. Um, (laughs) But I mean, it seems like you had the choice of going back home and applying that right away. What made you or what encouraged you to continue along the educational path? Yeah, that's a great question. Thinking about some of the failures um, (laughs) in my life, that there was a critical moment when I was a senior in college, when all my friends were interviewing with these financial organizations and trying to go for these consultancies. And there's a moment when I thought, maybe that's what I need to do. And, you know, all the education is all good and fine, but maybe a few years of experience working in the corporate world is the thing to do. I even remember going to Boston and interviewing with an advertising firm, completely not prepared. My heart wasn't in it at all. And one of the questions was, what's an example of an ad that you think is really terrible? And, you know, how would you think of making it better? And I, at the time, I gave an example. I came out, I was like, oh, that interview went pretty well, shared kind of what I had told them with my friends. And immediately one of them said, you know that they're the firm that did that, (laughs) like produced that ad, right? And I was like, nailed it. You got it. (laughs) Clearly did not get a job with them and came out of it just realizing, gosh, it's so far from who I am and what I want to do. And so that exploring and experimenting was matched with this growing curiosity for me about delving more into education And there was another thing, which was, you know, I always intended to go back to Nepal and work. And there was something in me that made it very clear to me that if I were a professional going back to Nepal and working, that I would need higher education in order to have some validity in the Nepali context for people to listen. That would need to be the case. Did you think about getting a PhD somewhere else or even a master's anywhere else? Or did did you just say... UC Berkeley or bust? I did. I was this poor student. I didn't have a lot of money. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, I can afford to apply to the top four schools in education at the time. And if I get in, fine. And if I don't, then that's a sign. And I just go back to Nepal. So I applied to four schools two on the East Coast, two on the West Coast. (laughs) And I was fortunate enough to get into all of them. But (laughs) I think the East Coast ones immediately I nixed because I couldn't imagine going through another East Coast winter after four years of being in Western Massachusetts and trudging through the snow. And my first winter there was the worst blizzard since 1960s or whatever. I think I was traumatized by the winters. And at the time, my brother was on the West Coast. So I said, you know, those two, I'm going to let go and I'll come and decide between these two West Coast schools. And when I visited, there was just something about the people I met at Berkeley that sealed the deal for me. I thought, okay, if I'm going to spend five years here pursuing this PhD, then this will be the place. I think there were two factors that kept me there. One was 
this amazing cohort I had. There were eight of us that started together, and it was a support group. We helped each other through the work. It was wonderful. And even a smaller subset of that, we realized that we were all feeling the same way. We were all committed to our communities or to change efforts at the level of people. And for some, it was at the level of the classroom because they had been classroom teachers. And now we're like, whoa, we're talking about all this stuff. But what's the actual application of this knowledge look like? And so we came across this research method that was called participatory research. What it talked about was the need to connect theory and practice and also the need to really engage with the people that we study, the need to really think about how to do research too in a way that's democratic, in a way that is mindful of bringing people's voices into uh, this process of generating new knowledge. And so when we learned about that, that was really for us such a motivating factor and said, okay, that's it. We want to start a research center. That's a center for participatory research. We want to make sure that this type of work is actually you know, acknowledged at UC Berkeley, where it wasn't at the time. And uh, we just set out on this mission, all of us doing research that had participatory research dimensions to it. We started a research center. We got funding from the Irvine Foundation at the time, a quarter of a million dollars, which at the time was like a huge victory. So you eventually got your PhD. So I got my PhD at UC Berkeley. It was interesting because in that final year was when I met my now husband. And I distinctly remember us wedding planning while I was finishing the last bits of my dissertation, doing all the revisions and so on. So it was this interesting thing where, you know, I was finishing one phase of my life, starting a whole nother exciting phase. <laughs> and at the time, you know, I didn't have any time to focus on the wedding planning. So my husband really took on that role of being the wedding planner. And like we'd show up at, you know, different venues to check him out. And he was the one with the binder and taking I'm notes. I'm not surprised. So he's, he's a very organized just, human being. <laughs> just lagging along saying yes or no. So he derailed your plans to go back home to Nepal. He completely <laughs> derailed my plans. Yes. <laughs> and so what did you decide to do after graduating Berkeley? It was not an easy decision. We had a lot of discussions about what this would mean. And he was just starting off his career. So it was important for me to support him. And he's in technology. So it made sense to be here and to pursue his career right here, especially at that time when the whole boom was starting. And so, yeah, we decided that I would look for opportunities here, if even if it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, to support his career for a few years, and that we would kind of reassess this uh, option of moving to Nepal. And so we did. I was, at the time, I had the opportunity to work part-time here, at USF I, while I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. So I already was getting to know the School of Education at USF. And once we got married, one of the colleagues here said, oh, you know, we're going to be opening a position here. We need someone to bring in more of an international dimension to the 
work that we already do. And I think your work would be great. So just keep a lookout. And so when this position opened up, of course, I applied. And what was the position? Was it to be a teacher? Yes, it was a tenure track position as assistant professor in international and multicultural education. The position just seemed perfect for the type of work I had been doing. For me, I wasn't necessarily looking to go into higher ed. So I thought, well, okay, I can do this for a year or two until we decide what we're doing with our lives, and then it'll be fine. So so I applied. Things moved quickly. I was one of the finalists, and then I was offered the job. And what year was that? All this was happening in 2004, 2005. And so I started here fall of 2005 in the full-time role. Yeah, I was already working here before that. And so once you're full professor, and that took about 10 years, what did you do after that? While I was associate professor, we had a change in leadership here at the school. We got a new dean. We were all very excited. He came from Chicago, from a different institution, and his philosophy and his research was very much in line with the school's mission and where we wanted to go. So it was a very exciting time. When he joined the school, I was the department chair for international and multicultural education as a faculty member. And early on when he joined, he approached me and said, you know, I've kind of heard you speak in meetings. I'm familiar with your work. And, you know, I'd like to invite you to consider being an associate dean in the dean's office. And you'd be a part of my leadership team. And my immediate response was, no way. (laughs) Like, who wants to be in administration, you know, and you can have the flexibility of faculty life and have the ability to do research and to teach and to interface with students and have this amazing work of creation really in the classroom to go from that to this mundane administrative work. So I said no. And then I was approached again, and I think once I started to really understand his vision for the school, I thought, okay, I can either sit here and complain as a faculty member all these years, all these discontents with the system and the process and the protocols, or I can maybe this is the chance to try my hand at institutional change and thinking, you know, like, what would it be like to really think about systemic changes? So I went for it and was associate dean for three years. And in that third year, I decided three years was a good run and made some changes that I had really hoped to make, especially in creating systems for student scholarships and for students to get support while they were here, working with faculty, with departments and their revisioning processes. And so it just felt like it was the right time to now think about going back to faculty. And so I approached the dean at the time and said that I was ready to go back to faculty. I would take my sabbatical the following year and then just join the faculty in the international and multicultural education department again. And going back to faculty means going back to teaching. Going back to teaching, exactly. Teaching and research. So the plans were made. And a month after those plans were made, the dean at the time decided that he was leaving in a very unexpected turn of events. I think my initial reaction was, what are we going to do? And (laughs) at the same time, like, 
I've made my plans, so <laughs> <laughs> the school's just going to have to figure this one out. And as things happened and as he actually left the university, I was starting to get little visits here and there from colleagues who were like, you know, it'd be great if you would just serve as interim dean and you know the school and you know us and it'd be, you know, it'd be a pity to have someone new come and again kind of do things differently and we need the stability. And so when the provost of the university, essentially my boss approached me and said, you know, we'd like you to be the interim, I did the same thing, which was to say, okay, fine, I'll be interim until the end of this academic year, but I've already made plans. And so that's all I'll do. And that was the agreement. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here you are as dean. How did that and end here up? here I am, How did still that here. So I served as the interim dean, and I think it was that spring. It really wasn't a lot of time. It was one semester where the search process began for the new dean. There was a search firm that was working with the community here to determine what it is they wanted in their new dean. You know, the process was underway, and I wasn't at all thinking that I would throw my hat in the ring, as they say. Is it you just weren't interested? You didn't want the responsibility? You didn't want to be part of the administration and to go back to faculty? Or why didn't you ever personally want to pursue it? It's a really good question. I think a few things. One is I was never aspiring to be an associate dean or an interim dean or a dean. <laughs> it was never a part of my career aspirations or even thinking that I might have something to offer in those areas. I, I really was so being an educator was such a huge part of my identity. And so deciding to go back to faculty just at the time seemed like such the right decision. And so I think that was a huge part of it. And at the same time, I think I wasn't sure what the school wanted. There was a lot of excitement about this previous dean and his scholarship. He was very much outward facing and in many ways this rising star in many different avenues in our field. And I didn't have those same aspirations, you know. <laughs> I came into administration to serve the school and in my own way was out there in research communities and made my presence in spaces where I felt were really important for me to contribute to. So it was just a different way of being. So then they do the search process. Did you throw your name in the ring or did someone volunteer your name for you <laughs> as they did the, the search with other candidates externally? There was a lot of encouragement. Let's put it that way. A lot of many, many colleagues coming up and saying, you know, just do it. You don't have to make a decision until the end. But at least if you're in the running, it'll make us feel good. And, and then I started consulting quite heavily with my own family. Should I even do this? It's such an awkward thing to go through a search process with your own constituents, especially when you're interim dean. My family too was very supportive. And I've always been a very spiritually grounded person. So I also always believe that there's a bigger plan for all of us. And I couldn't ignore those things that were happening at the time because I thought, well, I was trying to go in this direction. And then now suddenly 
I'm being thrown in this other direction. So what is what does this mean? And maybe it's not all a coincidence. Like maybe there's a reason why all of this is happening. Our previous dean decided to leave the same week that Donald Trump was elected. And so then I started thinking, well, maybe it is timely that a female dean rise up. There was so much just about my candidacy, I think, that was in opposition maybe or in contradiction to so much of this hate rhetoric and so on that was just starting to rise. I was announced dean actually in June. So things moved really fast. I was interviewing with the school around March, April, and then was offered the position in June. My family and I had tickets to go to Nepal, I think, (laughs) mid-June to visit my family. And the day I was leaving for Nepal in the evening, in the morning, I signed the contract and personally walked it up to the provost's office and got on the plane. Incredible. (laughs) So that's how it all unfolded. It was really interesting because I thought, okay, now I'm going to go to Nepal and I'm going to forget all about this. Because for me too, it had been this process of, oh my gosh, how did all of this happen? And going through the search process while at the same time trying to create some stability in the school, all of that. And I went to Nepal and news had already gotten out just as I was getting there. And the most beautiful thing I think that happened then as I was trying to escape kind of all of this was that there was such a collective celebration of the fact that a Nepali had been appointed dean, that it was probably one of the most affirming things I've experienced in my life. This sharing of joy and a sharing of the accomplishment. And I think at that moment, I mean, I've always had this orientation that it's never just about me. But at that moment, I really felt like, wow, this kind of thing is not a half the time not about us as individuals it's connected to such a larger community and for the Nepali community to share in that sense of accomplish was actually so humbling and affirming so then that was a full month in Nepal then you had to then I came and just it was full immersion into the reality of actually like being dean. So what were your first priorities or how did you want to affect change not being interim dean or associate dean, but now full dean? I knew one thing from being associate dean, which was that this community would need to take the time to really think about what we wanted to do next. So all of last year, I was committed to meeting with people. We had two big retreats, one all day with faculty, one all day with staff, town halls with students, then smaller meetings with faculty, smaller meetings with staff, smaller meetings with students. I knew I had to do that because people had so much to get off their chests. There was a lot of discontent. There were also a lot of hopes and desires. And listening to that had to be a full year-long project. So that's what it was. And I actually didn't come in saying, okay, we're going to do this and that and the other because I named some of the issues that we had to work on immediately and urgently, but also said we're going to be thoughtful about where we move. And so by the end of last year was when we came up with some of the 
major priorities for the school, as I'd heard from all the constituents. And actually, that big sheet of paper that you see behind you was like the initial <laughs> draft of it. That has now turned into something a little bit more concrete. No, I like um, this version better. It's, it's but more real. I think at the at the essence of this is thinking about the institution in this way that we need to take care of our people, that there has to be a strong sense of community as a collective and that the institution itself or the administration then has specific responsibilities and accountabilities too. So how I explain this to the school the model, is to think about the role of the individual, the role of the collective, and then the role of the institution in advancing a plan. So in the case of the School of Education, we have this vision for where we need to go, what we need to do to kind of take the school to the next level. But the individual has responsibilities kind of based on our each of our job descriptions. You know, you've come to teach such and such class, I've been appointed to do such and such thing. And so each individual has their mandate in some ways. But we also have all these collectives. We have offices, we have departments where people really need to come together and to have a unified vision to be able to engage in in meaningful and productive conversation, to map out what it is we need to be doing. And then the third is the institution, or in this case, the administration. And if all three can't work together in a productive way, we can't advance our mission. Because individuals can be doing excellent work, (laughs) but if the administration is, you know, oblivious to it or doesn't know how to support them, there's going to be cause for discontent. And so the priority this year, I kind of presented it to the full school at the beginning of the year and said, these are our priorities in terms of what we need to do, but the how we need to do it is equally important. And the how has to do with individuals, collectives, and the institution recognizing our roles in it and then advancing this together. What are your goals for at the end of your dean term that you want to achieve and that you want to be kind of known for within that legacy that you were dean? That's a really great question. One of the reasons that I am now really excited to be in higher ed, even though that wasn't the plan, even when I was pursuing my PhD, is this aspect of higher ed that has to do with the generation of new knowledge. Oftentimes we call this research, but I think even the word research has become really limiting because at the end of the day, it's really about generating new knowledge that can move us forward. So in education, it's about generating new knowledge that helps us think about new policies, new practices, what are some things that can help us move us forward as a field. So it's very specific to various disciplines, but I think at the level of just thinking about the significance of the generation of new knowledge, we need the generation of new knowledge to advance us even as a civilization because the status quo will take hold as it has in many different areas and and we continue to just sit with these habits of thought that have existed in a long time so this aspect of higher education is huge where we raise consciousness 
where we then share tools with students to so that they can then go out and seek so they can engage in inquiry they can ask questions based on what what they see in society and schools and communities and then say i want to utilize the best tools to answer these questions and then to go out there and see what emerges so that part of it is really important to me and at USF the school of education I think is very unique because most of our faculty are here because of our mission, which is to advance justice through education. If you look at our faculty and their research agendas, almost all faculty are doing something that not only kind of pushes our thinking in a specific area, whether it's higher education or K through 12 or preschool or in reading or in bilingual education, but it's also addressing the inequities that have existed in our society. This is where individual faculty members are doing amazing things, but I don't think as an institution we've leveraged this to say well, the knowledge that's coming out from USF School of Education is unique and distinct and has implications for really advancing society. It has implications for continuing to raise consciousness, for breaking our habits of thought, but also for really then applying this knowledge in ways that will change instruction and curriculum and schools and communities and so on. Yes. I'm so curious to get your thoughts on what you think is different being a female, being a person of color, being that type of background for the university? Like, how much does that affect your vision, do you think? For me, quite a bit. And it's, you know, I think these positions are made for people to kind of come in and just follow the protocol. And I can see how that would happen. I mean, there are moments where I have to kind of wake myself up too and kind of snap at my <laughs> snap myself out of these moments where I, I think I start thinking very much in ways that I'm expected to think in. Well, it's status quo. It's easier to go with what historical process or routine was. Exactly. And that's really the expectation, you know, that you fulfill kind of these certain requirements that come with the job. For me, it's always been so much more, you know, and I, I really think that being different in these roles is equally important. So what I mean by that is I've always been attracted to this phrase called transformative resistance. And I think that's about giving equal weight to kind of doing things differently and really thinking about like, how am I as a woman or as a person of color or as an immigrant or as whatever, really kind of being more mindful of existing traps or existing obstacles in these structures, these institutions, but also then mindfully saying, you know, I choose not to do A, B, and C the way it's been done because I want things to be different. So it's both like creating new ways, but also choosing to not do some of the things that are expected. For me, there is a need to really think about that like consciously all the time because otherwise what's the point really <laughs> in some ways one thing I remember people saying to me when I was in this dean search process was several people came up and said but you're so nice <laughs> like are you really going to be able to make the tough decisions and aside from being like slightly offended by that <laughs> comment I was like 
yeah, like why can't you be nice and make tough right. decisions? You like, seem why nice but very disciplined. And right. Right. <laughs> engage in really difficult decisions, like terminating someone's employment. They're just these parts of who I am that many people would think, gosh, that's not what a dean would do, or that's not how a dean should be, or you know, so on. Yes. I very much embrace those parts of it. I, I think having integrity and being authentic is also important. And in doing so, we're challenging a lot of assumptions about what these positions need to look like and who needs to be filling them. Well, it's fascinating to see because you're the first female dean here at the University of San Francisco. And and it'll be really great to see how that applies, not only to how you view the historic programs and the agendas put in place by your male predecessors, but also how you'll enhance that with your unique viewpoint of being female, whether it's nice or not. Okay, but I have a couple more things. I'd love our listeners to hear from you. And before I forget, and certainly it's one of my favorites, but can you share a few more of your failures that had impacted you along the way and really during your professional career? Sure. I, I think I shared a few little failures along the way. <laughs> I often think of some of my worst kind of quote, failures or challenges were in the classroom as a faculty member, where generally students were happy to be in the classes and really thinking about it. And I would go in having prepared like a full class on some really elevated topic and and have all these ideas for how the students would engage in it and so on. And they would not at all respond or or just be like, that doesn't make sense or completely feel like they were at odds with, with what I was doing. I also remember after going through the tenure process, which was really grueling, especially having had two children too in that tenure track process and really thinking, what does this mean? Am I not going to do this successfully? Full of self-doubt through that whole process. I submitted everything in September when everything was due. I went to teach a class and I literally could not formulate words. I couldn't think. I was so exhausted. (laughs) And I remember like standing in front of the class and saying, I have to end class early today. I'm so sorry. I can't do this. And the students were completely baffled. They're like, what's wrong with her? You know, and I just walked out feeling like a complete failure. You know, just feeling like I'm being assessed on all these things. And I just couldn't even explain one concept that I've been explaining for the past six years. And so I think especially related to my teaching and and maybe research too, where I've presented at a conference where people were like, that really doesn't make sense. Or you submit a paper to be published, which you think is your, you know, life's work, and you get the reviewers saying, sorry, it's been rejected, we're not going to publish it. I mean, these moments where, especially as a professional, I think I'm not good enough, or I I clearly don't have the right tools for this. Well, thank you for sharing that. What or who inspires you? You know, I've always said my father is a big inspiration in my life. It goes mostly to his general orientation towards his work. He's been such a leader in the field of communications and mass media, but he's so understated. He practices this very refreshing humility that I try to exude because I think 
it gives his work so much more importance that he's really not doing this for himself. I can't imagine how hard it must have been for him to lose the love of his life and then to just step it up, especially in a society that's so patriarchal, because I think probably most people expect him to just get remarried and, and move on with their life. And he was so committed to my brother and I and really sacrificed his own, I think, happiness for many years before he even thought about himself again. Keeping all of that in mind and, and seeing his commitment to his country, his people, his kids, his family has been such a huge source of inspiration for me. Well, the apple does not fall far from the tree because you are extremely humbled. And certainly as we were interviewing, I listed all your accolades and you were so uncomfortable with it. I would like to kind of toot your horn because you won't do it. But can you talk about the government of Nepal reaching out to you and saying, can you come back and speak to in our educational processes and systems? Sure. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, it's so interesting because earlier when I was telling you about my thinking as an undergrad that I had to get this degree in order to go back and have a voice, I actually never thought about this opportunity now in front of me and that connection, you know. But the government of Nepal is basically going through a process of really thinking about higher education in Nepal, which has been a huge struggle There's one government-led university and then the rest of public university and then a ton of private institutions with very little accountability or any kind of accrediting kind of process. And so the government wants to do this assessment of higher ed, but also to draw on people from South Asia, so all of South Asia, to come and really engage for two days on policy and practice in higher education. And they invited me to keynote the whole thing and to be the only invited speaker. (laughs) And so, so in a few weeks, I'm going to do that. And what was even more fascinating is I got a draft of the invitation and realized that it's all men and myself. I was thinking, gosh, like that dream of going back to Nepal and in some ways contributing is so has been so difficult, even though I tried to do that with my research when I was doing my dissertation and even in following years as a professional. But now it feels like there are new ways in which I'm able to do that. Incredible. Well, I am grateful to have you in the Bay Area still, and I'm sure the University of San Francisco is very appreciative of your efforts as well. There's a saying that I've always loved, and I think it's from J.D. Salinger, but it's where you comment on someone and you say you are a gentleman and a scholar. And I think the female equivalent is something like, you know, you're a learned lady, but I really don't like the sound of that. So I'll just modify it and say that you are a true scholar and a gentlewoman. And I really greatly appreciate you sharing your story. I'm very, very inspired by your selfless goal of bringing higher education to the forefront of people's attention and really can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I think it's wonderful that you're doing this to uplift and inspire everyone with this show. Thank you so much. 